Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Last week, I introduced this passage from Isaiah chapter 9, and it's the passage that's up on these banners. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah foretells, prophesies, the future birth of a child who would bear these four royal titles. Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And from last week we talked about, Isaiah lived and he did his ministry in Judah, which was a small nation with a precarious position in the geopolitical landscape. Approximately 200 years before Isaiah's time, the nation of Israel had fractured into the northern kingdom of Israel, which consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah, consisting of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And and those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that's to whom Isaiah was writing. And Judah had the capital city of Jerusalem, Hang on. Not sure why that's happening. TJ's been using this during Sunday school, and I think he, <laughs> I think he broke it. I'll try, to, I'll try to stand still. Judah had the capital city of Jerusalem with the temple and was ruled by the, by the Davidic dynasty. But Judah was smaller and weaker and poorer than the northern kingdom of Israel. And Judah was beset by larger, more powerful armies, including the rebellious northern kingdom. And all of this meant that the pressing questions for the people of Judah in Isaiah's day were, will we survive? Will we be destroyed by our hostile, powerful neighbors with their vastly greater resources and armies. Has the Lord abandoned us? Has the Lord forgotten about us? Are we right to trust in the Lord? Or should we take matters into our own hands and seek help from other nations, make alliances with other nations? And if we were to apply our modern psychological orient, psychologically oriented lens on Isaiah's audience, we would say of the people of Judah that they were a high-strung, anxious, stressed-out people. 
In his ministry to them, Isaiah often speaks sternly and has to say hard, uncomfortable, confrontational things. If you read Isaiah, Isaiah calls out Judah's sin, calls out their idolatry, their pride, their selfishness, their lack of trust and faith in the Lord. Isaiah doesn't pull punches. He, he looks at the people of Judah and he says, much of what you're experiencing is due to your sin. But, but the overall tone and message of Isaiah's preaching and prophesying is not rebuke, but comfort. Not condemnation, but mercy and grace. In their trouble, in their sin, in their fear, Isaiah holds out the offer of hope and peace and refuge. We, we heard it in the passage that Maureen read just a few minutes ago in Isaiah 40. In the preceding chapter, chapter 39, Isaiah has just given Judah the devastating news that in the future, they will be conquered by the Babylonians and driven into exile. It's, it's a hard word and a source of grief in chapter 39. And yet, how does he begin chapter 40? What are the next words out of his mouth? Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. In your anxiety, in your pain, in your fear of the future, in your grief over what you have experienced and what you will experience, Isaiah says, be comforted. Because your God will not forsake you. He will come in his might. He will reveal himself as a great and powerful king. He will put an end to all warfare and he will tend his people like a shepherd tends his flock. Listen to what Maureen just read in, verse, in chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the tone and message of Isaiah. Where did I? I'm, I'm lost. That's the tone and message of Isaiah. Trouble and pain has come. You're experiencing trouble and pain now. And there's the fearful prospect of trouble and pain in the future. But do not fear. Take heart. Be comforted. God is awake and aware and active, and he will move to bring refuge and redemption and rest. You are his, and if you trust in him, he will care for you. That's the message of Isaiah. Knowing that the context of Isaiah is a people who are anxious and fearful and in difficult circumstances, and knowing that the tone of Isaiah's message is ultimately hope and comfort, I want to consider Isaiah 9.6, our theme verse for the month. What is comforting and hopeful 
about this announcement? Why would Isaiah's readers have heard Isaiah 9-6 as good news? When Isaiah says, a son will be born and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. What is good news about a child being born and being called Almighty God? I'm going to turn this off and we're going to use this, this mic. Okay, is this one? Are we good? Okay, try to rest the rest of the sermon. Reset, here we go. So what is good news about a child being born and being called Almighty God? What would Isaiah's audience have heard in that announcement that would have given them meaningful relief from their distress? And what can give us meaningful relief and comfort, joy and peace, when we remember that Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy, that Jesus is Almighty God? And the message in Isaiah 9, and our focus this morning, is the reality that a child has been born who will be called Almighty God, connects our greatest possible need with the greatest possible good. So the first thing we we can see when we just look at the Bible as a whole is that there is a God who stands alone. There is a God who is perfect in power. And there is a God who is the source of life and all that is good. So when Isaiah says... To his audience, there is someone who is Almighty God. That's not news to them. That's not the first time that they've heard of this. They already know, they already believe that there is an Almighty God. That reality is the cornerstone on which all Jewish and Christian theology is built. It's, it's where we start the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah's audience, they were not atheists or agnostics. They believed that there was a God who was a supreme being. He created. He is eternal. He exists in and of himself. We see it in Genesis 1 and in the creation. And Isaiah's audience They were not polytheists who held to a pantheon of gods. Sure, there are lots of gods. And and that each of these gods have sway over different areas of life. Isaiah's audience believed that there was only one God and that this God had no rival and no equal, that this God had power and authority over everything and everyone that exists. You see it all over in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The fundamental confession of Judaism is there is one God. In Exodus 20, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. How does he start those Ten Commandments? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am God. I am one. There are no others. 
It's only me. Or Psalm 96, verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That's, that's the fundamental of Old Testament theology. There is one God. He is in control of all things. There is an almighty God. Now, many in our culture are functionally agnostics. They, their fundamental worldview is ill-defined. If you ask a lot of people in, in, in our context, what do you believe, they'll, they'll give you a blank stare. I don't know. That's a hard question. They, many people, they know that there is a world and that they have existence in it, here I am, and here it all is. We're, we're living right now. They know that gravity works and that it's a bad idea to run a stoplight. They know that there are other people and that things work best when we're generally kind and decent to each other. But that's about as defined as their worldview is. They don't, they don't have a grasp on ultimate things, they don't know why or how it all exists, where it all comes from, and what it all means. Scripture pro proclaims, and we believe, that at the bottom, the world has order and meaning, that it all makes sense. And the reason we believe that is because we believe that there is an almighty God who made it and holds it all together. The order that we see in the universe and in our own lives comes from this rock, this cornerstone that God is and he's in control. That's our fundamental. But there's a grave problem for humanity. We have, we have thrown a monkey wrench in the machine, and the whole operation has been greatly thrown out of whack. There is an almighty God. That's not news to you, I hope, and that's not news to Isaiah's audience, but we have sinned against this God. And in our sinfulness and our creatureliness, the fact that we are created, in our sinfulness and in our creatureliness, we can never hope to gain access to this God by our effort. Isaiah's audience knew that there is an almighty God and that he was actively engaged in his creation and more specifically in their lives, but their experience of God and their relationship to God was not clean or straightforward. It was tainted and truncated by their sin and rebellion. And Isaiah makes it clear throughout his writing that this deficiency, this, this taint in our relationship with God is not because of anything on God's end. It's because of what's happened on our end. Early on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has this throne room vision, sees God in his glory, God calls him to go and, and preach. 
verse nine. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In our sin, our eyes have become blind. Our ears have become deaf. We don't see reality. We don't take in reality as it really is. We've warped it and twisted it. And as a result of this, in Isaiah 59, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin has created a separation. Our sin has broken the right relationship that we are meant to have with our creator. We know that we've been cast out of the garden. We are exiles from the presence of God. This is a problem. This is, in fact, the problem for humanity. The Lord is the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all life. He is the source of all good things. And God is himself the greatest good. And we are cut off from him in our sin. This is the problem. This is where we are. Which leads Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 1, to say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. God, come down. That would that you would tear open heaven and come down to us because we're separated from you. Or John says this in two different ways. What I read for the Advent candle lighting, verse 18 of John 1. John says, no one has ever seen God. That's a problem. No one has ever seen God. Here is the greatest good, the source of all life, the source of peace, the source of hope, the source of rest. And we've never seen him, John says. And even after spending years with him, in John 14, Philip, one of his disciples, says to Jesus in, in John 14, 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, on the one hand, from Philip, that's the right impulse of a rightly ordered heart. Philip says to Jesus, we want God. Show us God. Take us to God. Let us see God. Jesus, just, just bring us to the Father. That's all we're asking for. That's all we need. But we can't have that. We don't deserve that. We can't attain that. Presence with God for sinners like us? So now can you begin to see why Isaiah 9 would be good news? That Isaiah would say to us, a child is born, 
To us, a son is given, and his name shall be called Almighty God. What's new to Isaiah's audience, and what's new, what, what should be new to us every Christmas, is that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, putting on human flesh to come down to us and dying on the cross to bring us to the Father. One of my best friends, he and I were roommates uh, after college. We were roommates up until he got married and he upgraded roommate. And now for, for the past decade and a half, he and I have lived several hours apart, but it's been the type of friendship where during the moments that really matter, the distance hasn't mattered. So there's been a few examples of this. Uh, I've, I've told this story in other places and this is not the time for the full story, but when I had a nervous breakdown during my engagement, that night he showed up at my door. Like I, I texted him, I said, hey, I'm not doing well. And an hour and a half later, there he was. And when I was first hired here at NCC, and I preached my first sermon on a Sunday evening over at the Grand, he was there. He, he and a friend made the drive, showed up. And then several months later, when his dad passed away unexpectedly, I drove to his house the next morning just so that I could listen to him, give him a hug, tell him I love him, pray for him. Physical presence in moments like that have cemented that friendship. For, for both of us, we know based on evidence that the other person is for us. That's my guy. I can count on him. He cares about me. If I ever need him, he'll be there. I know that it's true because it has been true. Every page of the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, declares that there is one God, eternal, all-knowing, and almighty, and it declares that this God is for his people. And I said earlier, this was not news to Isaiah's audience. They had heard that before. They know there is an almighty God. But Isaiah is telling them something new and unexpected and incredible. Isaiah is telling, him, telling them, almighty God, who is invisible in his glory and separate from us due to our sin, is going to come. He is going to come down. A child will be born and become a man, and people will be able to say of this flesh and blood right there before you person, he is almighty God. The invisible will become visible. The separation caused by our sin will be bridged. We are lost, and God will come find us. We are in trouble, and God will come to be near to us. That's the hope of Isaiah 9. 
And that's the hope of John 1 and John 14. So John 1, John reveals this problem. No one has ever seen God. And then he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, John, 4, John 1, 14, it means that the invisible becomes visible, that the distant becomes close, that the one we have been separated from makes himself near, that the one that we, ha- that we do not know because of our sin makes himself known. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at his father's side, he has made him known. Or John 14, verse 8, Philip says, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And and Jesus replies in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus' word to his disciples is, if you want, you want God? You've got him. You want a relationship with the Father? His son is standing right before you. Why do you think I'm here? Have you been with me this long? I'm showing you the Father. That's why he had just said two verses earlier, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through the Son. Come in the flesh, the child who has been born, of whom it can be said, Almighty God. And that brings us to Colossians 1. Paul says of of Jesus, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The thing that you can't see, there he is. At the incarnation, Jesus is God in visible form. It's the same thing in verse 19. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the image of the invisible God. Verse 16 makes it clear he is God himself. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all life. Jesus is God in the flesh. Come down from heaven because we could never climb up. In Christ, God becomes near and tangible. But there's one more step. My friend and I, we are only separated by life circumstances and by career choice. I've chosen to live in Northfield. He's chosen to live in St. Cloud. We are, sep- we are separated from God by our sin. We have dishonored and betrayed and rede- rejected God. For my friend to drive a few hours to see me 
is a kindness and an encouragement. For Jesus to take on flesh, to leave heaven, to humble himself, is incomparably greater, especially given that our separation is personal and grievous to him. He's coming to a people who have spit in his face and run away. We are in trouble because we have made trouble. And yet he comes. When I go to my friend or he comes to me in our trouble, we can sympathize with one another, offer encouragement to one another, pray for one another. But we can't do anything I can't do anything substantive to effect change for my friend. We we saw last week in in Hebrews 4 that Jesus can do that. Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. But Jesus does a lot more than that. Verse 20 of Colossians 1. Paul says that Jesus in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So so he comes, he, he brings us his physical presence. But more than that, Through him, he reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Almighty God has taken on human flesh. But because of our sin, when we encounter God, we deserve punishment. We deserve rebuke. We deserve judgment. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. On the day that you eat of it, you'll die. When God and man come together, God's justice demands a payment. Blood must be spilled if God is going to be near humans. Almighty God has chosen not to remain invisible and and distant, but to come close and make himself known. And instead of exacting the judgment that our sin rightly earned, he extends grace and forgiveness at great cost to himself. Jesus comes as Almighty God to reconcile, to make peace, by the blood of his cross. And so do you, like Isaiah's audience, do you know that there is an almighty God? The Bible speaks of him. Through the Bible, you can encounter the God that reveals himself. And do you know that this almighty God, his existence, his presence, and his involvement in your life is your greatest possible good, the best thing that could ever happen to you would be for there to be an almighty God who pays attention to you. And there is, and he does. But do you know that because of your sin, because of your lack of regard for him and your lack of willingness to listen to him, that you are cut off from him and in grave danger? And do you know that he has taken the steps to remedy this? Almighty God has bridged the gap 
has come to be near, has made peace by giving himself up to die for your sin. And so this Christmas and every day, you can know him and you never need to be alone. You never need to wonder, does somebody care? Can someone do something? Can someone help? Jesus is almighty God and he has come to bring you to be with himself. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see that the greatest possible good exists in almighty God? The fact that you exist, that you have created all things and in you all things hold together, that is the best reality in the universe and that we can know you through your son who has come to shed his blood to make payment for our sin. In Christ we pray, amen.